popular book in the Old Testament? Amos. No? Not quite? We have finished up with our sermon series in the book of Ephesians. I think it was a really sweet several months for our church. And now we're about to dig into God's goodness from the book of Amos. If you're using the black Bibles in the pews in front of you, uh, it's on page 764. If you're not, it's between Hosea and Jonah, if that helps at all. So there are basically two kinds of people in the world. Uh, There are people who uh, read the intros to books and people who don't read the intros. You know, they don't read the introduction. They skip right on to chapter one, getting down right into the nitty gritty of it all. Well, this morning's sermon is, uh, is kind of like the introduction for the book of Amos, and it's incredibly important. If you kind of miss what's happening in this morning's sermon, you're going to have a hard time keeping up with everything that happens uh, after this. So I'd encourage you to, if, you're, if you want to make sure like, hey, we're about to spend several weeks, maybe a couple months in Amos, and I really want to make sure I walk away from this time understanding this book, then I would encourage you to lock in extra tight and take uh, better notes today than you might otherwise. So, in the book of Amos... The year is somewhere around 760 B.C. The location is ancient Israel, or what is today known as Palestine. This is a strip of land on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean Sea. In the days of Amos, uh, the threat of the Assyrians is growing with each passing year. The Assyrians uh, are an empire that have been rising and growing in strength, And they are like a brush fire that is burning down towards Egypt and devouring every nation in its path. The political affairs of Israel at this time are, to put it quite frankly, in shambles. If you remember, after Solomon's death, uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the sons of Solomon, they tore the nation apart. Okay, And the nation of Israel has existed as two separate nations ever since that time. You have the ten tribes in the north, often called Samaria. So, by the way, sometimes studying the Old Testament is like reading uh, Russian literature. Everybody seems to have like four names, and it's kind of hard to keep up with, you know, if you've ever read Anna Karenina or something like that. It's just, it can be difficult. So, the ten tribes in the north, often called Israel, also called Samaria, okay? And then you have... Uh, the two southern tribes uh, ruled over by Uzziah called Judah, but it's Judah and Benjamin. So you have Jeroboam II ruling over the ten tribes in the north, Samaria, and Uzziah ruling over the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. Now, uh, at the time of this writing, at the time of Amos' ministry, not only is Israel divided politically, but they are also separated spiritually. The covenant people of God no longer worship at the same temple. That's what our sister Susanna read for us this morning from 1 Kings, right? In the, in the earliest days after the split between the north and the south, uh, Jeroboam one, astute political leader that he is, he realized, hey, if all these people from the north go to the temple, which is still located in the south in, in, in Jerusalem, in Judea, excuse me, in Judea, in Judah, 
if they go south, well, then they're probably going to want to stick around, you know? I mean, that's where the temple is. We might as well do our life there as well. So uh, he said, nah, I, I'd rather build my own temple here. And so he actually built two temples. He built one in Bethel, and he built one in Dan. Okay, this is what he says. This is kind of his justification from 1 Kings 12. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. Okay? As you can imagine, the Lord was none too pleased with the king's decision. As it turns out, building temples and setting up idols for false worship is not in the king's job description. We read, And this became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So the Lord was not pleased with the king's decision to build his own temples and to sort of have his own branch of religion over here apart from the one that God had divinely instituted in the south. And so continued the existence of these two nations, divided politically, divided geographically, divided spiritually, for about two centuries. Somewhere around the early 700 BCs, uh, 700s BC, Israel began to prosper again in the north, militarily and financially. Judah as well began to have some prosperity. Uh, it seemed like the two nations would never be united again under the same monarchy. And it seemed like they would never worship together again at the same temple. But at least they were sort of learning to live together uh, as neighbors. They were starting to be able to get along. And it was during this time of relative peace and relative prosperity, after a couple of centuries of friction, that the Lord finally decides to send his prophet Amos into Israel. Let's read it together. Amos chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Uh, and he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and I will cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Aven. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden and the people of Syria shall go into the exile to Ker, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried into exile the whole people to deliver them up to Edom. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds and I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. For three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. 
So I will send a fire upon Taman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will rekindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he burned to lime the bones of the kings of Edom. So I will send a fire upon Moab and it shall devour the strongholds of Kerioth and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of the trumpet. I will cut off the ruler from its mist and will kill all its princes with him, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. For three transgressions of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? And we just got a big old helping of it. I've got four points for you this morning (coughs) from all of that. Four points. The prophet, the people, the prophecy, and the judgment. The prophet the people, the prophecy, and the judgment. And you should know that it's killing me that I couldn't get a fourth P in there, you know? But I think it's, I think it's okay. Three P's and one J. Here we go. Point number one, the prophet. Uh, Amos was a shepherd from Tekoa. You see that if you go back to chapter one, verse one, it says, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. Now, the word here used for shepherd is a very specific Hebrew word. And because of that, uh, scholars believe that, uh, well, some scholars believe that he wasn't just sort of your run-of-the-mill, out-there-in-the-field kind of shepherd. They think he might have been sort of a a chief herdsman or a a manager of shepherds, if you will. Now, if that's true, this is kind of like in the world of ancient Near Eastern shepherding, this is about as high up the ladder as you can hope to climb. That's that's what uh, Amos was. But whether Amos was a poor shepherd or like a manager of all things sheep-related is, is neither here nor there. The, the thing that's significant, the reason why this is here in the text, what you need to know is that Amos was not a, a professional prophet. He was not trained clergy. You know, he was a layman. He was a shepherd. He didn't come from a lineage of prophets. He didn't come from a family of prophets. He wasn't even the son of prophets. Flip on over to chapter 7 real quick. Flip on over to chapter 7, verses 14 through 15. (coughs) When Amos is talking to the king, he says this, uh, starting in verse 14. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, which is, you know, the whole two-name thing. It's the name of the king in the north. I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. So, there you have it. 
No formal training, no lineage, not even, his dad wasn't even a prophet. It's not like he was sitting there like watching his dad as a kid, like, all right, this is how you do it. Now, you may be wondering why the Lord chose uh, a shepherd to be a prophet. Well, the truth is, I don't know, but there may be some evidence later in the text. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 12, you'll see that one of the sins that Israel is guilty of is that they were rejecting the word of their previous prophets. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says, But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. So it seems like the, the, you know, the guild of professional prophets had already been speaking on behalf of the Lord, and the Israelites were having nothing to do with it. So perhaps the Lord was like, all right, you're not going to listen to my trained clergyman. I'm just going to send you a shepherd, and I'm going to make him a prophet. Now, you'll remember our pocket-sized definition of what a prophet is. A prophet is someone who speaks God's word to God's people. Now, it's a pocket-sized definition because it's supposed to be something you can sort of whip out and use pretty easily. It's meant to be logged away and remembered. But usually when you get so simple, you also start to lose some nuance. So let, let's, let's clarify a little bit. Um, I think that I'm speaking God's word to you, God's people this morning, but I don't think I'm a prophet. What's significant about what a prophet is in the Bible is that a prophet is, a, is receiving God's special direct revelation and he is giving it to God's people. He is, uh, think about it in this way. He's not so much explaining the word as I'm doing this morning. I'm reading it and then explaining it, which is also proclaiming it. They're more of a conduit of God's word. There's not a whole lot of explanation. There's almost no explanation. It's just the word of the Lord is passing through the prophet out to the people, which is distinct from what I'm doing for you this morning as your pastor. We say that, uh, we say that, uh, a prophet is kind of like a megaphone in the hand of the Lord, right? A prophet is what the Lord uses to communicate his word to the nations. Now, uh, if you look at the very beginning of chapter 1, go on back to chapter 1, this is a preface for the whole book. And in the preface for the whole book in verse 1, it says, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa. So these are Amos' words. But then as you go on and as you continue to read every prophecy, right, it says in verse 3, thus says the Lord. Verse 6, thus says the Lord. And then, to, and by the way, it sandwiches, you know, there's a, there's a sort of pericope there. After every oracle of judgment, it says, says the Lord. So he begins every prophecy by saying, thus says the Lord. And then he ends every prophecy by saying, thus says the Lord. So the book begins by saying, these are the words of Amos. And then every prophecy is sandwiched with, these are the words of the Lord. These are the words of the Lord. The point is simple. Amos is speaking God's word. That's what a prophet does. Uh, I don't want to hang out on this a whole lot right now, but I do feel like I need to, uh, in light of kind of how weird things have gotten in the American church today, just stop and pause and clarify and let you know that uh, this is a very serious thing to claim to speak on behalf of the Lord, and people just do it all too flippantly. Uh, I just recently watched a clip on the internet of a very popular author claiming that Jesus told her to go brush someone's hair. Okay, 
Now, listen, whether or not she should have brushed that person's hair is beside the point, but to say that Jesus specifically spoke that word to her, you're elevating it to a different level, right? So we as Christians, we just need to be very careful. We need to make sure that when we say that God has said something, that we actually know for a fact that God has said it. And where we can look to find the words of the Lord is right here in the Bible. You may have an impression, you may have a feeling, you may have a desire to do something, and that's totally fine. And you know what? Do it, but don't feel like you have to say that God told you to do it in order for you to do it. Because it's a very serious thing to speak on behalf of the Lord. There are many Bible-believing Christians today who uh, say that prophecy in our own day, as opposed to in the Old Testament, is something where there's a mixture of truth and error. Well, friends, you should... I don't have an argument against that other than the fact that I just don't see anything of that anywhere in the Bible. I think prophecy in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament are the same thing. God is speaking his revelation to his people. And I don't ever see any evidence that there's error mixed in with that truth. So I just want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to be very careful and to not claim to speak on behalf of the Lord unless you have your Bibles open. All right. Now, the word of the Lord is, in verse 2, Amos says, like the roar coming out of the mouth of a lion, or so we think. Look at verse 2. It says, And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. We're going to talk more about that roar in a minute. Point number two, the people. The people. So uh, every year, Forbes or some other magazine comes out with a list of, you know, the hundred most difficult jobs or the hundred most stressful jobs that you can have. And it's always, you know, like ER nurse and soldier and, you know, homeschool mom, (laughs) all up there at the top. that, you know, Forbes didn't exist back in the days of Amos, but if they did, if they had their top 10 list of most stressful jobs, I think being a prophet would have been right up there. Being a prophet, it, everybody wants to be a prophet, man, you know? Everybody wants to be a prophet. I don't know why. Because when you see what the prophets have to go through in the Bible, they, to be a prophet is a call to suffer. Ezekiel was commanded to lay on his side for 430 days as a picture of God's forthcoming judgment. The prophet Jeremiah had to tell a king some very bad news. The king didn't want to hear it. He got thrown down into a well. You think about Jonah. He was called to go prophesy to the Assyrians, these people who would like take their slaves and put metal through their tongues and lead them along in a chain as they would march them away from their battlefields. I mean, just a horrendous, violent, vicious people who, by the way, Jonah hated. God says, Jonah, I need you to go prophesy to them. Then you have Amos. Amos was called out of Judah to go prophesy in Samaria. Now see, when I talk about somebody laying on their side for 430 days or getting thrown into a well or having to go prophesy to the Ninevites, uh, you're like, oh man, that's crazy. But I say, you know, he had, Amos had to go from Judah in the south to Israel in the north and, and it's kind of like, well, I don't, I don't get what's, what's so significant about that. Well, friends, it's actually quite significant. Let me, let, me try to, let me try to explain, help you understand. Uh, imagine that in the United States, uh, imagine that uh, in our civil war, 
the South won. Imagine that the North lost and the South won and that slavery still existed today and that America is now split along the Mason-Dixon line. The 11 states in the South would be their own nation, their own confederate nation, and the remaining states would continue to be the United States. Now imagine that from 1865 until now, we have been coexisting with each other along that border, always on the verge of another clash, another altercation. Two very different peoples living in the same land, always on the verge of a problem. Now imagine that in the year 2019, the Lord sends a prophet from the north, the free states, down into the south to prophesy against the southern states and their practice of slavery and all the rest of their evil ways. How well do you think that that would go over in the south? Well, not very well at all. Well, that's kind of like what's happening here. The Lord is calling Amos from the region of Tekoa, which is about 20 miles south of Jerusalem, so it's, it's like even more south than, than the south. And, and, and there's this long-standing tension between Israel and Judah. There is a bit of a civil war. They finally managed to make peace, but they still live in this tension. They're separate politically, they're separate religiously, and they both look down their noses at each other. And so God tells Amos to go from Judah up to the site of the false temple in Bethel in the north and to prophesy against the nation of Israel. I mean, it's like a suicide mission. You know, if a Yankee prophet came from the north into the slaveholding south and prophesied against slaveholding, how hard do you think it would be for the slaveholders to kill that prophet? Not very hard at all. I don't think it would have been that hard for people in the north to kill Amos for what he was saying as he prophesied against them. But it gets worse. Point number three, the prophecy. The prophecy. It would not have been easy for Amos to deliver this prophecy in the northern kingdom no matter what, but there are a couple of factors that make it all the more difficult for Amos. So the first factor that makes it more difficult for him is that Amos's prophecy is a, is a prophecy of judgment given in a time of prosperity. It's a promise of judgment given in a time of prosperity. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next point. But right now, you just need to know that the nation of Israel and Judah, so in the north and in the south, they were uh, both growing in a number of different ways. So militarily, they were both doing well. They were winning battles. They were gaining back lost territory. They were expanding their borders and securing their borders. And you know what happens when a nation enlarges its borders and has security at those borders? They begin to prosper financially. And so Israel in the north and Judah in the south were also beginning to experience financial blessings. Trade was growing, okay? In the north, people were becoming so wealthy that they had northern, excuse me, they had uh, summer and winter homes. You know how somebody says, I'm going to go summer in Connecticut. You know, that was them, okay, in the north. Chapter 3 tells us that they had become so wealthy that their houses were covered in ivory, And friends, prosperity can blind us to our sins and to our need to repent. Prosperity can keep us from hearing God's call to repentance. One of the main reasons why prosperity does this to us is because we tend to think that if we're prospering, we must be doing something right by God. 
right? Isn't that just kind of our natural, what we, we kind of have this cause and effect mentality where we think, uh, if I'm experiencing financial blessings, it must be because God is pleased with me, right? And if I'm experiencing financial curses, it must be because God is displeased with me. If I'm experiencing military victory, I must be doing something right. God must be on my side. We have to remember, though, that throughout the whole Bible, we are reminded again and again that earthly blessings are no sure sign of God's pleasure and that suffering is no sure sign of God's displeasure. We have to remember Job, who suffered as a faithful servant. We have to remember the one that Job was pointing to, Jesus, who suffered as the beloved son of God. It's not just that the righteous suffer, it's also that the wicked who seem to prosper under the hand of the Lord in their wickedness. So turn with me to 2 Kings real quick. 2 Kings. We're going to go to 2 Kings chapter 14. starting in verse 23. We're going to go from 23 to 29. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years. And he did what was evil, In the sight of the Lord, he did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, which he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath, as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of uh, Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. We're on a roll here with these names. Verse 26, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, For there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So what do we see here? We see here that this king, Jeroboam, was wicked in the Lord's sight. He did what was evil. Nevertheless, the Lord blessed his kingship. He expanded his borders, and he did good by the people of Israel. Why? Well, because it seems like the Lord took pity on Israel. So the Lord blessed the king, even though he was wicked, and it had nothing to do with the king's wickedness, and it had everything to do with the people of Israel. That's one of the reasons why I pray for our president the way that I do. I don't know if you notice the language. Do I think our president is a wicked man? Absolutely. Am I still going to pray for him as the Bible commands? Yes, because one of the reasons why is I understand that God doesn't operate according to this binary reasoning principle that we so often operate with, which says he's a wicked man, therefore everything that he does is going to be cursed. No, I'm praying, Lord, treat us better than our president deserves for us. And I could say the same thing for the president before this one as this one. So I'm not taking a stance against Donald Trump. Now, I went off manuscript there. If you're offended, I need you to just power through. The people of Israel, as you will see in the coming weeks, will be uh, hard-pressed to hear the words of judgment against them because as they look around at their earthly prosperity, they equate it with heavenly blessing. Now, the second reason why it would be difficult for the Israelites to hear the prophecy of Amos has to do with the way in which he delivered the prophecy. Uh, You'll notice 
Beginning in verse 2, Amos begins his prophetic ministry in the north by attacking all the pagan nations surrounding Israel. So there are eight oracles of judgment that we read this morning, and the first six are all pagan nations that are surrounding Israel. If you watch the video that I sent out this week about the book of Amos, it's kind of cool, like Israel's in the middle, and the Lord just starts to pick off these nations around Israel, sort of forming a bullseye around his people. In chapter 1, verse 3, an oracle against Damascus. Verse 6, an oracle against Gaza. Verse 9, an oracle against Tyre. Verse 11, an oracle against Edom. Verse 13, an oracle against the Ammonites. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, an oracle against Moab. And can't you just imagine what it must have been like for the Israelites to hear Amos prophesy against all these pagans? You know, they must have been eating it up. They were like, yeah, Amos, dude, I don't know why you're here from Judah, but stick around for a while. Can I get you a beer? You know, like, like yeah, you tell Damascus and you tell Gaza. I mean, Israel's been fighting wars. They've been having skirmishes with these nations ever since they were a nation. So they were probably super pleased to hear these prophecies. It would be like if a prophet came to America prophesying against Mexico for its corruption and against Canada for its liberalism and against Iraq for their despotic rulers and against Pakistan for its habit of harboring and training terrorists. Yeah, preach. But it doesn't stop there. Amos really knows how to get the crowd going as he delivers his seventh oracle against Judah. Look at chapter 2, verse 4. Go back to Amos, chapter 2, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah, and for four I will not revoke the punishment, because they have rejected the law of the Lord and not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Okay, yeah. So you came up from the south to tell us that God is going to smite your own people? Fantastic! Because I know that they're down there thinking that they're so much better than us. They're thinking, we got the real temple. You guys don't have any temple at all. Your temple's a false temple. As they're hearing this prophecy, they're probably just sitting there thinking, yes, Judah, you thought you were so much better than us. But it's clear now God has let us know that you have rejected his statutes. You've been led astray. You don't obey his law. You are following the way of error. I can just see them eating it all up which means that it must have stung incredibly bad to hear what came after that, which starts in chapter two, verse six. This is an oracle of prophecy against Israel. Let's read it together um, from verse six on to 16. Thus says the Lord, (coughs) for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed the fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you for 40 years in the wilderness to possess possess the land of the Amorite. 
I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. We're going to look at Israel's sins that are listed in chapter 2 next week. But for this week, I just want us to look closely at the nature of God's judgment, which leads us to point number four. The judgment of God. I got three subpoints for you. God's judgment is severe, it is impartial, and it is definite. Severe, impartial, and definite. Now, if you read this morning's verses carefully, you'll notice, notice a, a recurring theme of fire. So like if you go back to chapter 1, you see in verse 4, so I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael. If you go to verse 7, I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza. If you go to verse 10, I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. You go to verse 12, I will send a fire upon Taman. Go to verse 14, I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah. Go to chapter 2, verse 2, I will send a fire upon Moab. Now, as you remember from our time in the Gospel of Mark, fire is an image that is often used in Scripture to refer to God's judgment, His wrath. The same is true in the book of Amos. Now you can really understand what's happening here with this language that Amos is using, this, this uh, se- severe judgment language, when you look a little bit closer at chapter 1, verse 2. Go back there and look at that with me. It says, The Lord, <coughs> the Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, the pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Now you see here, it says that the Lord roars from Zion. Now the word translated as roar here in your English Bibles, it can mean one of two things. It can either mean the roar of a lion, or it can mean something like a, a clap of thunder. Okay, so uh, it would make sense if it means the roar of a lion, Uh, Because typically male lions only uh, roar when they're about to attack. And so it could be that the Lord is saying, hey, listen, I'm about to deliver this judgment against all of you people. And so you're about to hear my roar before I bring forth my wrath. But it could also make sense that this word means something more like the clap of thunder. The roar of thunder. The sound of thunder is also often associated with judgment in the scriptures. And it would make for an interesting play on words with this verse. You'll notice that the next line says that in light of the Lord's voice roaring, what does it say happens? It says that the pastures mourn and the top of Carmel withers. Well, wither, what does that mean? It means that it dries up. 
The top of Carmel dries up. So basically, Amos is saying, or he could be saying, that instead of a storm bringing rain, which would be a blessing to the dry lands of the ancient Near East, the storm of God's judgment is coming, and when it arrives, it will rain fiery judgments, and the nations will feel the clap of his thunder in their bones. I think this lines up with something that happened uh, very early, uh, excuse me, uh, not too long before Amos' ministry. It happened uh, with the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel. Do you all remember the story in 1 Kings chapter 18? There's a showdown between Elijah and all these prophets of Baal. And we read there in 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench." Mount Carmel withered under the fire of the Lord. Perhaps it's just a clever play on words. Maybe the author intended it to communicate something of both. Regardless of which Hebrew scholar knows best, whether it's the roar of a lion or the roar of thunder, we know one thing for certain. The people who heard this prophecy at Bethel, they received it as a prophecy of doom they understood it to be a word of severe judgment. It's a terrifying thing. The Lord is displeased with the idolatry and injustice of the nations in general and of his particular people, and he is about to make his displeasure known. God's judgment, second subpoint, is impartial. There's no, there's no partiality with God, friends. He, there's no partiality if you're black or white or rich or poor or young or old, educated or not. We read in Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, that God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, like these Israelites, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury, fire. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. But it gets worse than that. I don't know if you notice in that verse, but Not only does that verse say that God doesn't show partiality, but it also says that God's people are held to a higher level of accountability. Right? It says that when there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, it comes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Well, why does it come first to the Jew? Why does judgment come first to the household of God? Well, it comes to us first because we have been the recipients of God's covenant love. God has loved us in a very special, unique way. He's given us his divine revelation. He sort of set us up, you know. He put the ball on the tee and told us to swing the bat. He's given us everything that we could possibly need. 
The reason why teachers are held to a higher level accountability, of accountability, at least one reason, is because they know more. It's not okay that the nations sin, but it's particularly appalling when the covenant people of God sin in such a way that they end up looking like the nations around them rather than God's holy children. Let that be a warning to you, friends, this morning. Every single person in this room is hearing God's word. You've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ from the time that you walked through the doors this morning, and you'll probably hear it a few more times before you walk out again. You are held to a higher level of accountability because you have received the word of truth. If nothing else, you have received it this morning. God's judgment is three, definite. You'll notice a pattern uh, in these oracles of judgment where, wherein Amos says, for three sins and then four, right? And that's also connected to something else that he says over and over again. He says, uh, I will not revoke the punishment. I will not revoke the punishment. Over and over again, I will not revoke the punishment. I think what's happening here is the Lord is saying something like, listen, uh, three sins, not good. I wasn't happy about it. But like there was, still, there was still an opportunity for you to, to turn. But for four, I, I can't. I've reached the limit. I've crossed the threshold. I'm not going to revoke the punishment. I don't think he's speaking in terms of salvation here. I think he's talking about, listen, you've done something that requires judgment. And the judgment that I'm going to render is final. I've already rendered it. There's no going back. The time for mercy has closed. Now we have found ourselves in the time for judgment. So what is this punishment that God has resolved to bring upon the nations in general and upon his people in particular? Well, I don't think the answer is found in the book of Amos itself. I think it's found when you just know the rest of the story of the Bible outside of the book of Amos. I think the answer is that God is going to bring destruction at the hands of Assyria. Okay, The Lord has raised up Assyria as a mighty hammer in his hand to bring about discipline and destruction for the nations. About 30 years after the book of Amos, the war machine of a nation known as Assyria came down and utterly crushed every nation in Palestine, including all of these nations. But the worst of it all was delivered to the unfaithful nation in the north, to Samaria. When, it, when Assyria came into the north, uh, the ten tribes were utterly destroyed. They were carried away by the Assyrians. They were dispersed among the nations to never be formed again. The judgment against them was final. So when the Lord says, I have rendered this verdict, I'm not turning back from it, he meant what he said. Now, you shouldn't think about God as being intemperate, as if he was sort of sitting back and going, all right, I told you not to do this and you did it three times and then you did it a fourth time. So listen, I'm gonna send this nation down to crush you. That's not what was happening here. God has been telling his people all along ever since he formed them as a nation, he's been telling them, listen, if you're faithful to me and my covenant, I'm gonna bless you. And if you're unfaithful to me and my covenant, you're gonna incur the, the curses of being unfaithful to the covenant. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 28. The Lord, if you are unfaithful to the covenant, will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, <coughs> but flee from them in seven, and you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. 
Your carcasses will be food for all the birds and the wild animals, and there will be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will drive you and the king you set over you to a, that's an interesting way to phrase that, by the way, to a nation unknown to you or your ancestors. And there you will worship other gods, gods of wood and stone. You will become a thing of horror, a byword, and an object of ridicule among all the peoples where the Lord will drive you. He promised them. You know, you go into Lifeway or what used to be a Lifeway and you buy the book of 101 special promises from God and you read it as a 100-day devotional. You're probably never gonna read the promise that God will make you a byword among the nations, that he will utterly destroy you. But it is a promise and God is a keeper of his promises. You should know that the Lord was not silent to his people people before he reached this end point of judgment, before he reached the point of no return. We already read in chapter 2, verse 12, that the Lord had sent numerous prophets. But what did they do when the prophets came? The prophets came and they said, hey guys, listen, uh, God's been pretty clear about what he wants from us. Just be faithful, turn from sins, and follow him. And what did they do? They shut up the prophets. And so the Lord has exercised great patience towards his covenant children. If you read the story of the Old Testament, like if you just take an afternoon, and I would encourage you to do this, just take an afternoon and try to read chronologically through the Old Testament just for a couple of hours, you can see this, this cycle of like, God is kind to his people, he calls them out of darkness, brings them into a light, gives them the law, says this is how you should live in light of the fact that I've loved you, and they go, okay, and then they, you know, they rebel almost immediately. But then God's very kind and he sends a prophet or he raises up a judge or he does something and he sends somebody and the somebody comes and they go, hey guys, listen, you're really messing this thing up. You need to repent and turn back to God. And they go, okay, we're gonna turn back to God. And God goes, all right, I forgive you. Let's start, let's start again fresh. And then they sin again immediately. And that's just the story of God's people all throughout the Old Testament. And God has been incredibly gracious towards them. He's been incredibly patient, patient towards them. But what we see here in the book of Amos is that the offer of God's mercy and grace does not last forever. The offer of God's mercy and grace should not be presumed upon. We shouldn't think, oh, you've forgiven me three times, Lord. You've tolerated three of my sins. And I'm going to bank that you're going to forgive me on this fourth one. Even as Christians, we have to remember that there's a limit to God's mercy in our lives. I'm not talking about losing your salvation here. But it may mean that, like, for example, the Lord kills people in a congregation who aren't celebrating the Lord's Supper properly. You see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. It may mean that the Lord removes the lampstand from the church, which is what he warns these churches about in the beginning of Revelation. Hey, you're doing good here. You're really messing up here. And some of you are so bad you're, you're really tempting me and I'm about to take my lampstand away. I'm about to take the light of my presence out from among you. It may mean that the Lord lets an entire denomination die. It may, means that, it may mean that he lets the door of a seminary close. It may mean that he removes his hand of grace from an entire nation. For us, as individuals, we know for certain that the door to God's mercy and grace has closed finally when our eyes close for the last time. When we close our eyes in death, that is the moment that we pass 
from this life to the next, the, life, the moment that we pass from this realm where grace is made available to us to the realm where we will know nothing but God's perfect justice. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27 reminds us, it is appointed for man to die once, once. There's no coming back. There's no do-overs. Die once, and after that comes the judgment. So don't presume upon God's grace. Don't presume that tomorrow will come. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Because the day of God's final decisive and severe judgment may be nearer than you know, you should turn from your sin today and not wait for tomorrow. What you need to be saved may not even be available to you tomorrow, but I tell you, it was made available to you today based off of something that Jesus Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. That's a long lineage of grace availability. Christ took the fiery wrath of God's judgment that we should have taken. That fire that's going to rain down on these nations, that hammer from the hand and the blow of Assyria that should have rained down on us, it rained down on Christ. He took everything that we should have taken and if we repent of our sins and trust in him, we get credit for his faithfulness. That should amaze you because we have not been a faithful people. Uh, as Will's been teaching for the last month on Wednesday nights, we've, we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul talks about uh, learning from the examples of those who came before us. Paul is telling the Corinthians, he's saying, listen, <clears throat> all these examples of idolatry in the Old Testament, uh, that was written down for you so that you can read from their sin, read of their sin, read of their mistakes so that you don't have to make them yourselves, Right? You should know that the nation of Judah actually survived the onslaught of Assyria. They were crushed, and then, you know, Assyria put in its puppet government leader, and, uh, and then they kind of continued on. But then do you know what happened not long after, after that, after they survived Assyria? In the year 586 B.C., they were destroyed, utterly destroyed, and carried off into exile by the nation of Babylon. Judah should have looked at their neighbors to the north should have learned from their example and turned away from their sins. They should have heeded this word, looked at that destruction and said, okay, now's the time. I'm, I'm, I understand what's happening here. I'm gonna turn away from my sin. But they didn't. Be wiser than the nation of Judah, brothers and sisters. These things of Israel and Judah are written down for you and me as examples so that we don't have to make the same mistakes so that we don't foolishly presume upon the grace of God, so that we don't foolishly assume that God will forgive us the fourth time even though he's already given us grace three times prior. Today is a day of salvation. Let me pray. Father, <clears throat> help us to believe these things, Lord. Help these things to be real deep down in our hearts. Help us to live our lives like we actually believe this to be true. May our church become a church that reflects this reality that we know your word, that we love your word, that we trust your word, and that we're gonna obey your word. Help us to be a people who are marked by repentance and wisdom and by true worship of you. 
Lord, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to hear next week about uh, what it looks like to walk in righteousness, what it looks like to love mercy, and we pray that you would help us to live out that life uh, until we come back together again. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Please stand.